to encourage you. Uh, we're going to be looking at John 11. Now, the, the lectionary text is 45 verses long, so I don't want to read them all, okay? Yay, he's not going to read them all. Okay. Um, and then the Old Testament passage is from Ezekiel 37, verses 1 to 14. They're really related together. Um, now, if you have it, I'm going to grab my Bible, which is right over here, and uh, try to hold it in readiness to take a peek at as I go through it. Uh, but we are looking at, last week we looked at the miraculous, one of the recorded signs, the, the recorded miraculous signs in John's gospel. Last week we looked at the sixth miraculous sign uh, recorded in John's gospel and the healing of the man born blind. And each one of those miracles was intended, uh, again, John says there's so many things that we couldn't even put them into a book, but these have been written that you would believe. And what was revealed in like the healing of the man born blind is that that God not only opens eyes, but he opens blinded hearts. Um, in the, for instance, in the, the wedding at Cana, Jesus is revealing that he's bringing a feast called the kingdom of God. Uh, in John 11, we read the story of the death of Lazarus, Jesus' friend. And Jesus is revealing that he is the resurrection and the life. Now, again, it's a long text. So I'm just going to be referring to it as we go through the message. And uh, I'm going to, rather than trying to read through all of the different verses. The, uh, the title that I've given the message this morning is, What's the Smell? Or What's That Smell? I, I think is the right title. Have you ever had that moment? Uh, you know, that awkward moment when uh, you come into a, a room and you don't, you know, your nose is telling you something that you don't want to act like everybody in the room can tell. Um, when we're, oh, you know, when Denise and I were, were married and we were driving to a little country church, you know, and we, we'd be driving along and I would smell it. I have a super smeller nose. I'd smell it a little ways away and then we'd be driving along and she'd say, oh, what is that? And of course, for a boy growing up on the farm, my response is, that's the smell of money, honey. <laughs> it was a farm we drove by. I, yeah, I just got that right. Uh, you know, a rotten potato bit, a rotten potato in the potato bin. You know, it's like, oh, man, just it can fill up a room. Um, I'm also, you know, I find it intriguing that one of the worst smells is fresh flowers after they've died and you throw them into the, into the trash bin. Man, alive. It's like, take them out right away. How is it something that can bring such beautiful aroma later can smell so rough? Um, so uh, one, one particular moment in, in my journey uh, what that, that comes to my mind as I think about this is the moment that uh, our secretarial staff, we began to, they, they began smelling something. Now, I had, a, I had an office on the second floor. They were on the first floor, and they began to talk about that odd odor, and I'm like, whatever, you know, just an old building. Then it started getting really strong. Then I got to the point where I got, it came into the office and they're burning candles, not because of, you know, any kind of ritual. I mean, they're trying to cover the smell. And what they finally concluded was something in the wall had died. I don't know if you've ever had that, but it's like there's no way you're going to find it. You're just going to have to live through it till it passes. Uh, that particular week, I didn't meet with people in the conference room. We went to a coffee shop and let the secretaries deal with that and burn their candles. Um, but you know what I'm talking about. When something can smell up an entire room or, in some cases, can almost fill up a whole area, a whole region. 
um, I remember coming with with my son and Adam and, and Logan and I and a few others that were in Shillong, India, and we, we came into the public hospital, and the smell greeted you. This public hospital is, a, that's a very generous word. It was basically a place to go and receive some kind of care. But most of the care was brought by family members. Many of them in that hospital ward were, were uh, dying of TB. And so, and, and, you know, the guy that we're with says, the Lord's going to protect us. Let's go. <laughs> I was like, okay, let's go. So we went, and again, this, the smell greeted us, and, and it gave us an indication of what was lying in the ward. And, you know, if any indication of what was greeting us at first, we knew it was going to be difficult. And then the, the faces of the, fa uh, the, of the patients, but more importantly, the family members, when they looked at us, confirmed what our noses told us. And that is, is isn't just a bunch of people that are sick, they're dying. And most of them didn't speak very good English. Most of them were had, had Hindi. I have no idea what their religious background was. They didn't know what my religious background was. But you know what was interesting? When we walked in and smiled, the first thing they were doing was grabbing me and pulling me. They are grabbing me by the shirt sleeve, by the coat. They said, you come. Um, and, and they wanted us to come and to pray because, it, you know, after just a short time of greeting, when you come into a place that is... It's, it's a valley of dry bones, and everybody knows it. Anything that has the fragrance of life is something people want. They want you to come near. And so they could see the difference, and they wanted us to come and to pray with them. Now, here's what I want to share. This is, this is what is interesting and, and I think more challenging for us in our culture. Most of us don't carry the obvious odors and smells. We cover them up really well. Here's what I mean. Um, there is not a one of us that isn't faced with what I'll call the valley of the shadow of death or the valley of dry bones. We've all been touched by it. it there's all places that we have been hit. And it runs, I, it doesn't matter. You know, I used to tell Denise, I said, I, when I would meet somebody who was chronically ill, and I was working with them in the hospital. If I, if I was able to sit down with them long enough and begin to engage with them, you know what was interesting? It didn't take me long to find some type of place of deep grief in their life within the last five years. Now, before anybody hears me saying that in a condemning kind of way against anybody who's ill, remember, I was chronically ill for 10 years. Um, these places of our life that are difficult, they touch all of us. So he, these are the kind of places I'm talking about, those valleys that have like dry bones and death. There's sickness, but here's the ones that we kind of put a lid on. And yet they have a strong odor to our heart. The betrayals, the broken relationships, the offenses that have been left to simmer, the power system that left us wounded and fearful of ever trusting anybody else. 
the systemic systems of injustice that have touched one generation, and we watch it touch our kids, and we feel helpless. Everything we've done, we thought we tried to do so it wouldn't touch them, and it touches them, and it leaves something aching in us. It feels like death, and we can't seem to get it out. See, my point is that valley runs through the middle of everyone's life. We all have real places where, as one person puts it, death wraps itself around us like strips of cloth, grave cloths that smell. And we carry that aroma, maybe not physically, but it's in us, and it's touched all of us. The valley of dry bones has touched all of us, leaving us with that smell of death. The question that the Spirit of God asked the prophet over when he brought him over this valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37, which, by the way, is our Old Testament text this morning. And here's the question that the Spirit of God asked the prophet Ezekiel. Can these bones live? Oh, wait a minute. That's the question all of us have been struggling with. Or maybe more pointed, like, like Mary and Martha in John 11. When Jesus finally comes, they confront him and said, if you'd been here. And their conclusion in that statement, you not only were not here, you've left us alone to face loss and death. And nothing can help where we are now. We're faced with the valley of dry bones. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. They're verbalizing a basic unspoken truth that many of us have concluded. God, you're distant from my pain. And I'm disappointed. And death seems to be what I have to face. Now, interesting, in the text... I'm jumping all around in the text, so if you want to follow me, it's fine. I'm somewhere around verses 17 to 20 in there uh, where, where Martha comes and says, Jesus, if he'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But then Jesus said, he will live. And Mary verbalizes her next assumption, the next assumption that most of us struggle with. first one is, God, if he'd been here, he's distant. But now she locates the promise of God, this is really important, in the future, but not in my life. Can I just say something? I cannot tell you the number of times I've heard people try to comfort me in that kind of way. In the death of our son, well, you know, it'll be better out there. So, our idea is he's distant and ultimately delayed. She verbalizes the God that many of us have formed in our hearts it, it, when we're surrounded by this valley of dry bones, by the smell of death. God's distant. He's delayed. And the good news in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that I proclaim over us today is that Jesus reveals life in the face of death, not in the distant future, but in the present. The fragrance of life because He is the resurrection and the life. 
That's what he said. That's how he identifies himself. I am the resurrection and the life answers the question that Ezekiel heard. Can these bones live? That question that haunts us in the valley of dry bones, in the valley of death. Can these bones live? And Jesus said, those who believe in me will live even in death. Everyone who lives in me, believes in me, will never truly die. Do you believe this? Beloved, Jesus knows how to call dead things back to life. And that's good news. You know, part of the fascinating part of this story, 45 verses describing Jesus receiving the news about Lazarus' illness, his delay, his coming, his exchange with Mary and Martha, with the Jews that are there. We'll look at some of this. But interestingly, the only thing he ever said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. Death isn't a problem for him. And, and, you know, part of what makes this a remarkable account is how Jesus responds just beginning in this text. Look in Luke 11. He hears that his friend is sick. Now, remember, two chapters before, he's just healed a man born blind. Whoa! This dude can do stuff. His friend is sick. So it takes about a day to get to Jesus, who is on the other side of the Jordan, near Jerusalem. But he stays there two more days. And then he begins to head back to Bethany. Now we're up to four days. So assuming the fact that his friend died as soon as they sent word, he's been dead four days, all dead. In Jewish tradition, some Jewish tradition, a person is not fully dead, their, their soul remains with the body for three days. Lazarus, been dead for four. So when Jesus returns to Bethany, and you, you, get, this, uh, you get this account now, verses, he starts around verse 15 and 16. There's an interesting, he says, you know, I'm on, Lazarus, by the way, isn't sleeping. He's actually dead. Then Thomas says, oh, great, we get to go die too. He knows about the hostility that is there towards Jesus. They'd already tried to stone him. Remember chapter 8. He said, man, alive, we're going to get drugged into the middle of this thing too. And then as he comes into Bethany, Martha comes. Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And there's a load of questions and conclusions in that statement, mainly the disappointment of the Jesus who didn't come when he heard that Jesus was healed. And the, the question is, why? You know, Jesus, as he comes into Bethany, he's greeted by a load of emotion, disappointment, discouragement, disbelief, because what? They've concluded Jesus is distant and delayed. And so all these questions, why? If you have your Bible open, look at verses, uh, where, where are we at here? Um, 35, I believe it is. Yeah. 35, 36? Now, interesting, verse 35, it, I remember when I was working with the downtown mission, um, 
think that at that time the the that was called the inner city mission, and they were, had to memorize uh, so many verses each week. The very first one they'd always memorize is John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. There you go. You memorize the verse. But in 36 and 37, some of the Jews were watching, and they're like, he really loved him. But here's what's intriguing is you've got not only Martha saying, Jesus, if you'd been here, but now there are some Jews who really can't, they can't withhold their judgment. He healed a blind man for Pete's sake. How come he couldn't heal, you know, add to, come and help his friend and come to his aid? If he loved him, you said that he loved him. Well, how could he let this happen? Now, some of us are brave enough to say that out loud. Most of us have had those questions. So, you know, before you cast the Jews in John 11 in a negative light, they're just verbalizing and being honest with what they're seeing because these are questions that all of us face when we're surrounded. And by the way, it touches all of us, the valley of dry bones, the valley of death. Why? Why the distance? Why the delay? Do you care? Now, I want to I share something, this side, little sidebar bunny trail worth, worth looking at. Something that is glaring in John's account of Jesus. Notice this in John 11. He never actually directly answers those questions. Why, why the two days? We don't really, I mean, you, have to, you can get a little inductive reasoning in there, but you, he doesn't directly answer. Maybe, as one person said it so well, life in Jesus isn't always found in the explanations, but sometimes in the questions and wrestling with them. And as Jesus is confronted with these questions, and I got down to verse 35 and I commented on that for just a moment, it, it, but if you look at the original text, it isn't just that Jesus wept. It actually says that he was moved with emotion. I love the way the Passion Translation uh, gives this a really good translation because this is not stoic, unmoved, uncaring, irritated Jesus. He shed a tear. <clears throat> irritated. No. Listen to the Passion Translation. When Jesus looked at Mary and he saw her weeping at his feet and all her friends who were with her grieving, he shuddered. He shuddered with emotion and was deeply moved with tenderness and compassion. And he asked, where have you laid him? Jesus wants to locate where Lazarus' body is. And when they arrive at the tomb, Jesus asked the unthinkable. He says, remove, remove the stone. Now, wait a minute. Lord, it's going to stink to high heaven. Death is in there, and we all know it. 
And Jesus replied, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Now, I want to remind us, this wasn't some kind of test. This was Jesus' self-disclosure. This, please, please hear it in that way. Jesus is self-disclosing. I know what I'm about. What is he about? He knows that Jesus, what is Jesus' life all about? He's revealing to us what it actually means to be a human being and what the Father looks like. Those, this is his job description. So Jesus is saying, you're going to see the glory of God. The, ooh, glory of God? No. No, the word glory actually means more than just, I mean, there are some goose pimply moments. But here's my point. The original word means the rep to be of a good opinion. That's what glory is. So Jesus says, I'm going to reveal what God's actual opinion is about you and about this situation. His passion is to reveal the good opinion of the Father to the human heart when they're in the valley, surrounded by dry bones and the smell of death. So don't miss that. And, and also, I, I mentioned this thing about questions. Can I just underline this point here? Jesus doesn't seem to be in a hurry to remove disappointment. And maybe because he knows that's inescapable. So moms and dads, as much as we wrestle with that with our kids, me, you know, C.S. Lewis used to make this statement. He's, and, and you know, I, there, there's some good truth in it, but he said, you know, God grants us these little places in our lives, a, a warm bath, a beautiful sunset, a beautiful sunrise, but he doesn't let, it, let us linger in that place because he doesn't want us to mistake this place for home, see? And his point was that our home is in Christ. I don't want us to get the idea that our home is separate away from where we are. But the point being that this level of disappointment is enough to, to prick our hearts to say there's, there, there has to be more than what I'm able to find outside of God. So he knows it's inescapable. Now, let me also point to the fact that Jesus never corrects, criticizes, or reprimands Mary, Martha, or even the Jews that were judging him. Doesn't. Doesn't even bother. He simply gives this invitation. Do you believe this? I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. I'm answering the question. Can this live? Can these bones live? That smell filling the room with tears and emotion, death, loss. And what, how does Jesus meet that? He doesn't meet it stoically, correctively. He meets it by encountering them with his own emotion and tears. He meets them right there in their loss and their disappointment. Where Jesus meets us in our loss and our, our disappointment is in the middle of it. Salvation, beloved, hear this, is in the present, right where we are. And it's here that we read that Jesus said, do you believe this? You're gonna, didn't I tell you if you believe you'd see the glory of God? He raises his eyes and he says this prayer, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing here, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. This is really, really good. Jesus says, Father, I know that you hear me. Oh, can I remind us of the chapter before? Some of us are really familiar with this chapter. John 10, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, right? 
And I'm, I'm that good shepherd. Isn't that interesting that Jesus comes into the valley of dry bones, into the place surrounded with the smell of death, and he says, Father, my confidence is knowing that you hear me. Not even what I'm smelling and what I'm experiencing and what's meant and that the pain I feel and the hurt I feel in my body. I know you hear me right where I'm at. Hearing the truth of the Father's heart correctly is why Jesus came, beloved, to reveal the love of the Father to the human heart. So Jesus in this simple prayer is revealing that the passion of God, the Godhead is to reveal to us in the midst of, the, uh, of this valley of dry bones and the stench of death that we would hear and have grace to hear the good opinion of the Father of his love toward us right where we are. I mentioned, I think, last week, you know, springtime in Indiana when we're in the middle of mud season. There is a little bit later in the springtime when we'll have some warm rain. And underneath the trees, there'll be a blanket of flowers. And when that rain gets done and you step outside, it's that smell is unmistakable, isn't it? Now, for my son and my daughter-in-law, they happen to live like a quarter of a mile away from this massive orange orchard. And so, you know, we'll, we're going to be there, by the way, next week on spring break. So it's like, I'm going to say, open the doors. I want to smell the orange fields because it's unmistakable. The fragrance of life is unmistakable. Beloved, we proclaim this good news today that in Jesus he is the resurrection and the life. He's not distant. He's not delayed. Life that is present and that said, Lazarus, come forth. And here comes this man wrapped in grave cloths, and he says, unbind and unloose him. Now, that's almost a sermon by itself. We'll maybe get to that next time when we look at this text. But I, I want to point out something that in, in the Gospels uh, it, we, we don't, that, that I found really fascinating as I was looking at this text. Lazarus, all dead, now he's alive, right? Unbind him and unloose him. Now, how many of you ever heard these foxhole prayers, you know? God, if you'll do this, I'll do, right? And I, I know that God did this so that I have to go now and do this. You, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Where do we find the resurrected Lazarus? After John 11, put on our thinking cap for a moment. There's no list of accomplishments. No church he started. Not even in church history. Um, no gospel account that says he went out witnessing. Now, now you know, the woman at the well did. And the blind man, he's like, dude, I can see. <laughs> Lazarus raised from the dead. The only gospel account that we have after this, he's eating with Jesus. He's opened his home. He's reclining with Jesus. And, and, and oh, the other time, he's, he's there when Mary Magdalene comes and washes his feet and anoints his feet. The resurrection life of Jesus, beloved, is primarily about power, not just to accomplish great things or a future afterlife, 
Here's the point I'm trying to make. All that we see in Lazarus is a shared life with Jesus. That's the only account that we have. Beloved, the resurrection life of Jesus in my life is about living in the closeness of a shared life with Jesus. See, it's not just the death of Jesus, but the life of Jesus that brings about salvation. John 1.16 says, of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace to live in the fullness of a shared life, to have a meal together with Jesus, just to do life. To smell the fragrance of life. Beloved, the good news that we proclaim is the fragrance of life in the, in the stench of death because he is the, he is the resurrection and the life. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, he answered the question that Ezekiel heard and the question that haunts many of our hearts in the valley of dry bones, in the valley of death. Can these bones live? Those who believe in me will live even in death. Even everyone who lives and believes in me will never truly die. Do you believe this? Jesus knows how to call dead things back to life. Lazarus, come forth. Jesus, as we come to this incredible story, I know there's so many other things we could look at. Lord, I, I, I'm just moved. Lord, it's just moved my heart in these last few days to think about that idea that your salvation is present but also intended to be just a life that we live together with you while we're doing what we call the normal stuff of life. Lord, that in that place, we could sense and smell the fragrance of your life, your love toward us revealed. I want to invite you guys, if you would, to join me as we uh, come to close here. Would you, would you go ahead and stand with me? And um, those of you on the call, if you have something to share in communion, we're going to come to communion here in just a moment. But I want to invite you to praying this prayer with me in closing. Let's pray this together. God of all consolation and compassion, your son comforted the grieving sisters, Martha and Mary. Your breath alone brings life to dry bones and weary souls. Pour out your spirit upon us that we may face despair and death with the hope of resurrection and faith in the one who called Lazarus forth from the grave. Amen and amen.